Hey, Midnight Founder fans, we got some great news for you. The e-competition sponsored by RevRoad is now not just once a year, but it's twice a year. And this is where you as a founder can come and pitch your business to a fantastic panel of judges and win prize money. Central Bank's excited to sponsor it. We'll be giving away $10,000 to the top winner and 14,500 for all the winners. And I would love to hand you the check for $10,000, but you gotta get your application in. So come join us at the RevRoad e-competition and get your applications into ecomp.revroad.com by March 11th at midnight. We'll watch for those to come. Welcome to another episode here at the Midnight Founders Podcast. We're so excited to be with you today. This is AJ Rounds from RevRoad and Jake McCarg from CB Vault. Here at the Midnight Founders Podcast, we focus on telling behind the scenes stories for what makes a successful entrepreneur. We're excited for another week. Here we go. All right. Hey, well, uh, we're super excited today to be here uh, with another episode of Midnight Founders Podcast. Today on our show, we have Neil Schmidt with Smees and uh, Jake and I, Jake McCarg here, co-host, is uh, we're really excited to uh, dive into Neil's story, uh, serial entrepreneur and just getting started. So Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you. This is awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Good to have you here. No, we, we typically start out with just a quick 30 second elevator pitch of what you're doing now, which is a company called Smees. Yeah. So tell us about that and why you're doing that. All right. So Smees is a play on words, okay. like a uh, subject matter expert is like the phrase. A lot of times it's abbreviated S M E. And if someone's talking about it in the plural, they say Smees. Um, and so Smees is a way to kind of connect with people that know what they're talking about. And so we went after content creators initially. So like if you were like going to YouTube and you like to fix your vacuum or something like that, you might come across someone that like knows what they're talking about. Uh, so if they don't answer your specific question in the video, we thought, hey, wouldn't it be great if you could just give that person a call and they would get paid if they answered. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way to kind of create an anonymous conference bridge between two people's phones and allow someone to earn some extra money uh, like on YouTube off their content. So just to make sure I understand. So Let's say, um, I mean, to go to this vacuum uh, idea that you just threw out, right? So I released the next Dyson, which would be incredible, right? Yeah. And I'm talking about how it works and, you know, how to put it together or whatever, because I hate putting stuff together, right? And I'm like, oh, I didn't understand step, you know, 13 to step 14. So then I would have a way through that YouTube video to connect to uh, me if I'm a, a customer saying, hey, how did you, how did this work from step 13 to 14? Can you tell me how that, that was? Is that, is that what you're talking about? So yeah, it's, a, it's an immediate it's way a, to get a hold of that that YouTube creator, that content creator, essentially. Yeah, what we found is that a lot of people end up trusting the opinion of someone that, on YouTube after they've listened to them talk for like 15, 20 minutes on a subject. And so if the answer is not in the video and they don't want to risk like leaving a comment and like having it go unanswered, uh, there's some people that are willing to pay just to like, oh, I'll, just, I'll pay 10 bucks, I'll pay 20 bucks, I'll just call that person real quick and just ask them. Um, and so per call basis, essentially. Yeah. Per call basis. Okay. Is it an app? No, we, we wanted it to be like super, super frictionless. So essentially like it's, it's no app download necessary. It's like as simple as like clicking their link, clicking Apple pay bridge created between their phones. So would they have mm -hmm. to add it to their YouTube link then? Yeah. Uh, well not their YouTube link, but like, you know, like in their video description, okay, or yeah. a lot of people have like a link tree where right. like it will link to a bunch of places and, and it will just say like, Hey, if you have any questions, give me a call. And, uh, if they click that, like I said, it's super easy. They literally just click Apple pay and, or Google pay. 
not judging any Android <laughs> users. <laughs> Whatever pay you use. <laughs> Good. Cool. That's cool. How's it? Um, how's it going, Neil? With that, it's going good. I think we're we're still trying to figure out our footing. You know, like uh, it's one of those things where, like, in your mind, you're like, "This is a cool idea," and then like once you get it out there, you're like, "Okay, we might have to make a few tweaks to really get this thing some serious traction." And and so one of the issues we're running into is people aren't used to paying to call someone on YouTube. Right. And so it requires a little bit of education or exposure from the content creator being like, you know, in their video actually calling out like, Hey, by the way, you can call me. Um, and, but then there's this element of like, you know, people aren't used to paying like most people aren't used to paying for a consultant. Mm. Um, and, and so we've kind of been starting to explore areas where people are used to paying for people's time, like lawyers. So we're doing something with a, a law firm and, uh, and, and I think it will work well for them. Uh, it's a way for them to kind of quickly take a paid call to their intake team and, and, you know, vet the person and, uh, and give like a little bit of like legal advice for not that much money. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So you're kind of going to the early adopter market directly who are already used to doing that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, lawyers, uh, every law firm is like slightly different, yeah. but lawyers that practice like family law or like personal injury, these guys are like constantly have to, f they constantly have to figure out a way to keep their pipeline full because they have like all these one and done customers. Right. And some of these guys are getting into YouTube and they're like creating like a video about what to do if you get a DUI. And, and then they use that to kind of generate. Hopefully that's a once only <laughs> <laughs> or never. <laughs> Sounds engaging to me. Whoa. <laughs> um, and th these videos do pretty well. Like on, you know, TikTok, they'll create like shortened versions of it. Like cop pulls you over. He's going to ask you if you want to take a breathalyzer test. You're going to say no. And, you know, like you're like, they tell you kind of like some tips and tricks about how to handle this situation. And, uh, but then, you know, it ends up becoming a way to funnel in customers into, you know, their business. And, and once they funnel them in, they kind of have to make some decisions about like how much money do they want to charge them for some initial consultations. And some of them will go free and then they spend a lot of time, you know, like potentially giving free legal advice to people and not making money. Or they have this option of like, should we charge them a little bit of money, get them committed, weed out some of the people that aren't willing to spend any money and then kind of bring them further down the funnel. And so we think there's kind of an opportunity for SMEs and in that realm because everyone, you know, if you go to YouTube searching for a lawyer at some point, you know, you're going to have to spend money. That's yeah. kind of like the common behavior. Whereas if I like look up Hawaii trip videos, I might not necessarily be thinking at some point I'm going to have to talk to someone, you know, or, or I'm going to have to pay to talk to a travel agent. No one's like thinking like that. No one pays for travel agents. And so I don't know. I've been like seven YouTube videos deep trying to figure out how to fix a part on my car before. And I totally would have paid. Someone. That's where I was <laughs> yeah. going. I'm like, what about auto mechanics? Yeah. Like, cause I, I'm cheap. So like yeah. I've, I've tried to fix like a bunch of stuff. Usually I try with a hammer and it doesn't work very well, but like I've <laughs> tried harder. To, yeah. Like, cause you know, I grew up in a cabinet shop. So like hammer, that's the tool I know how to use. Uh, but like, I've watched YouTube video after YouTube video after YouTube video to try and figure something out. And I'm like, well, I just can't figure it out. So then it gets fixed a yeah. different way. And, or maybe even home improvement, right? Because you're looking at yeah. this project and they're explaining how to hang cabinets in a certain way or do a certain stenciling or something on the wall. And you're like, what, 
how did that work exactly? And yeah, to call sure. them immediately, that would be cool. Yeah. That, that type of a trade I think could be really cool. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That. Fascinating. So we're, I mean, other than watching, you know, seven YouTube videos on how to fix a car, where did the genesis of this idea come from? Um, it came from an, like originally, so I used to work at E-Trade and then E-Trade got bought by Morgan Stanley. And, and I saw a lot of like interesting things when I was at E-Trade, I was doing like options and futures trading software, which I knew nothing about before I started that. But that's one of the reasons why I like product or product management. That's what I kind of, my title is, is you can walk in, you can kind of like in an industry that you know nothing about and kind of like figure out how to maybe fix some problems in it. And, um, but there was an executive that came into E-Trade and they never had like any good ideas. Uh, in fact, the only idea they ever had was let's hire some expensive consultants. <laughs> and so I saw this executive <laughs> like hire round after round of consultants, you know, McKinsey, Accenture, and I mean, spending up, a fortune, oh, probably. Millions, millions and millions of yeah. dollars on these consultants. And, and I saw what the end product was, which was usually just like kind of like a fancy PowerPoint deck, maybe like an Excel spreadsheet and some generic recommendation, like start a credit card, <laughs> you know, like, like it wasn't, it just blew my mind that like, you know, that like there was like this, these bloated consulting agencies that could spend so much money on like, like, you know, hotels and, and like food and, and just like charge you millions and millions of dollars for what kind of seemed to me like kind of some generic recommendations. And, and so I was thinking there's gotta be a way to kind of disrupt that. And I feel like that happened with like, with the film industry or film production industry, you know, like you used to have like, you know, Leo Burnett, you know, these big ad agencies that like would charge you millions and millions of dollars for like a 30 second car ad. And, and then we kind of saw that morph into something a little more efficient where like, then all of a sudden you got the Harmon brothers doing it instead of, you know, $5 million, they're doing it for like 500 K. So like reducing the cost quite a bit. And then it got even smaller where like now, like you can do some pretty cool stuff in the film production space for like under 50,000. And, uh, and so I figured, and, and the whole time they're kind of trimming the fat in that industry. And so I kind of felt like if you were going to trim the fat in the consulting world, like you would probably get rid of a lot of stuff that didn't involve like actual subject matter expertise. Uh, that seemed like one of the big things of value they did bring. Sometimes you bring a consultant on and like the thing you want to know about is like, Hey, we're getting into the EV space. We need to know about manufacturing batteries in this country. Like, okay, if you can introduce me to a subject matter expert that has done that before that can walk us through that, that's like a value. And so I was like, there's gotta be a way to kind of streamline the connection between a person that's working on something and a subject matter expert that can help. And, and there's not a lot of great tools out there for that. Like, that's why the consulting agencies can, they, you know, they find that expert, you know, and they maybe pay him a thousand dollars an hour and then, and then bill you $15,000 an hour, you know, it's like that kind of crazy. And so I thought, well, maybe we can figure out a way to connect these two people. And the way we ended up doing it was kind of going after initially content creators because we thought, well, the content creators are oftentimes engaging with people that are in the middle of trying to solve a problem like, like you with the mechanic uh, or the mechanical issue on the car. You know, like 
you're going to YouTube because you have a problem. You're going to this search engine because you have a problem. And, and if we can get the content creators on board, you know, like uh, that, this could be a way to kind of like really streamline we've got a kind of like almost like a micro consulting type relationship um, where like you could pay less than 50 bucks. It's like know, the fiber for content creation. Yeah. Kind of like that. I like that. Mm. Very cool. So you must've been like, I mean, I just, the entrepreneur mind just works different. So like, have you been an entrepreneur from the beginning? Because for you to like, see that issue at an organization you're working with and be like, ah, there's a way to disrupt this industry. It requires a certain type of personality. So have you, have you always been that way? Yeah. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. I think, I think like one of my first jobs, I was like really driven by just like laziness, you know? So like I got a, <laughs> I got a job at a th movie theater and the movie theater, in my mind, I was like, this is the perfect job. It was a one screen movie theater. So <laughs> like, was you got this? an hour and a half off every hour. Dude, Lord of the Rings, you're getting like three hours. <laughs> like I, I was like, this is brilliant. I Where was, was like, this at? This is in Chicago. Okay. And there's a theater that's like old school, man, like built in 1927, 1928. And it's got the old marquee, like funky sculptures. It's got 1,400 seats. Like wow. just like, that's like an unusually large like movie theater. It's got like this three story ceiling, like in the theater, you got like a spiral staircase that goes up to this old school <laughs> projector. And I was thinking, dude, you sell tickets there. You rip the tickets and you fill people's popcorn for three hours if they happen to come out. And then the rest of the time, this was before smartphones. So I just read, read books. And so I feel like I was like driven by like, not problem solving, but kind of laziness. Like my mind was like smart enough to like figure out like, how can I keep being lazy? And, and the movie theater like worked really well, but every job like I've had, like has kind of like, uh, I feel like I've kind of evolved uh, and learned things from that, you know, the things that I saw happen at those places. Um, but when I graduated college, uh, the first thing I did, it was like a couple years, maybe a year or two after the app store had come out. And, and I felt like there was a wave. I was like, there's a wave here to catch. Um, you know, like the app store came out in 2008, like, you know, like I'm like 2009, 2010, I'm like graduating like college and, and I'm thinking, dude, there's a wave here to catch. And it felt like the, the new internet or something like that. And so me and a few buddies were like, let's, let's build an iPhone app. But we didn't know how I had taken a few like coding classes, like in college, but you know, it's a little bit of a different game, uh, you know, building like an app from scratch, especially because like our, all of our ideas involved some sort of back end that would be necessary to like feed data to the app. And so uh, we ended up scrounging all the money we had together. So we, we came up with like six grand hmm. and we're like, well, let's, let's find someone that has built an iPhone app before and let's pay them to build ours. And, and we With found six thousand dollars <laughs> back in the day. It probably yeah. was cheap. Back well, I mean, I mean, I built SMEs with 2000. There you go. Okay. So there you everyone go. gave some sweat equity along the way, but go. like, um, Love it. but yeah, we were going to pay someone six grand to like build this app. And the best idea we had at the time, and it's like, it's kind of a fun idea, but like, um, it didn't really solve any problems, <laughs> um, but it was a multiplayer photo scavenger hunt app. And so like you could play with up to 50 players 
And essentially, you'd start a game, and it would load up all these items onto a board. And some of the items would be really hard to find. Some of them would be easier to find. Um, and we had a point system based on how hard or easy we thought each of these items was. And some of them were like, you know, subjective. Like it would say hot guy or hot girl. And then you take a picture of someone and, you know, people could like vote against it. Be like, that person's not hot. <laughs> um, but it would create this kind of fun game and that you would play over the course of like a day or, or a week. Um, and this was like what I thought was a little better than like Words of Friends because Words of Friends was like one-on-one -on -one games. And I felt like, It'd be fun if you could just have like 20 people playing this thing. And so like they became like bigger games um, where you'd have a lot of friends in there. And then like you're all snapping pictures throughout the day. And it was hard to kind of get traction with that too. But I figured out a way to kind of game the system. Um, back then, uh, there was no freemium model. Now all apps have like freemium, the freemium monetization model where like they'll give it to you for free and then they upsell you. Back then, it was either paid or free. There was no in-app purchases, and and so there were all these app. There was all these like websites that would track apps that would like look for price drops. So like, hey, this app used to cost one ninety nine. Now it's free today, and and so I was like, I was like, I think we can like blow out the exposure on these websites if we just keep manipulating the price. So we kept like we kept like. <laughs> Let's see where we this kept is putting going. it to like two dollars, then dropping to, to free for a day. Two dollars, dropping it for free for a day, and so one day we, we were doing it, and somehow it picked up some some news outlet in like in England, and uh, and so we got ten thousand, more than ten thousand downloads in the UK in a single day, which back then put you in the top, you know, seventy five apps. <laughs> And so, like, all of a sudden, this no-name app, it was called Buckshot, it, all, this no-name app had, like, reached, like, within the 100, you know, the top 100 of the UK app store. And, and so we totally gamed it. And then we got to a point where we, like, had, like, 20,000 active registered players. And, and we ran into this situation where, um, by the way, I did it on AWS, too. And so AWS had a free tier back then. And, and so like, like our web hosting was completely free. I tried to do every, I'm do I'm like the cheapest person you'll ever meet. Hustler. I like <laughs> it. We call it Scrappy. <laughs> yeah. Scrappy. There you go. And, and so like, you know, but we weren't making like a ton of money. We were making like 300 bucks a month and which isn't like enough for any of us to live off of or even to put back into development. Because like at this point we like, like we paid for like, we paid the guy six grand to build an app, but that, like we didn't realize like, hey, there's a there's other features we'd want to build with this app until we like ran into the situation where like we don't have money to kind of build out the new features, and we're not making any money enough to like live off of, and and so I was like, I think I just want to you know I just want to get a job where I can keep doing this. I was like, this was really really fun. I'd never even heard of product management like in college. And I was like, but I just want to build software. And, um, and so I was like, let's, let's sell the app. And, and so, but like, you know, my buddies that were on the project were like, like, you can't, where are you going to sell an app? You know, like there's like, not like a marketplace that you can just like go to sell an app. I was like, well, let's just sell it on eBay. 
<laughs> and so we created. I read this on your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> Everything you sold on eBay, right? I was still a little confused, but I didn't know you sold the actual app on yeah. eBay. I thought you were selling some product on eBay. <laughs> but you sold hilarious. it as a business, right? I, yeah, or, we sold. We well, we sold the entire. You sold bike. the company on eBay. Yeah. I mean, it, it, like. <laughs> That's funny. That funny. Oh, that's great. I, I think you're our first guest that's ever sold a company on eBay. <laughs> right? I think you might be like one of the only people on earth that's ever sold a company on eBay. We have eBay. now heard it all, ladies that, and gentlemen. But here's what we did. So I posted it on eBay and then I created, we had a blog and I created a blog post about like, hey, I started the bidding at $1, no, no minimum. And, and so I, Bold. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I created an article that said like an app that you can buy for $1 or own for $1. And, you know, meaning like, like you can either pay a dollar on the app store to buy this app, or you can literally just own the entire app for $1. And so I created an article or a blog post about it. And then I like put it on Reddit, tried to thumb it up on Reddit and, and it started picking up some steam. And so then when it picked up on steam on Reddit, I sent it over to TechCrunch. And then TechCrunch picked up the story. And then when TechCrunch picked up the story, CNN picked up the story. And, and so all of a sudden this eBay listing for like a no-name app for the most part uh, ended up getting 10, like the stats on it were crazy. Like within a day, it got like 10,000 uh, views from a thousand, I think it was like a thousand or 2000 unique viewers. Mm-hmm. And, and then it had a, over a hundred bids and then it like ended at like 17 thousand so like almost a almost a dollar per active user or whatever which wasn't bad but the company that bought it they it was a a company out in like california who who was thinking the same way i was thinking like hey apps are really cool and so they bought like they bought like 100 apps and uh over the course of like a year or so and uh, and then they realize there's no way we can maintain maintain all these like and so all of them just like all of them crash and yeah they just like you, if you're not cranking out regular updates for the app like it's not going to go anywhere and and so buckshot is no more oh man. <laughs> moment of silence for buckshot yeah huh. but you, but you, you sold it on eBay still you that's... three extra revenue or you three extra <laughs> investment that's good exactly yeah it's not bad um, and then so I've at the time Groupon was exploding. And so I was like, Hey, I bet I could build software products over at Groupon. I was like, Groupon's doing a lot of cool stuff. And Groupon was in Chicago. And, and so I sent a resume, but it was like, just, I was like a college grad, you know, no experience other than creating this buckshot and which I didn't, I don't think they took seriously in the, in the application process. And, and so it just went nowhere. And so I was like, well, I really want to, yeah, Groupon, I was like, they're growing really fast. You know, Groupon went from zero to 10,000 uh, team members, like within, I think, a three-year period. It, I think it's still in the history of wow. companies in the United States. It's the fastest growing. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Some of that happened through acquisition. They bought, they bought a lot of the clones that popped up, the Daily Deal clones all over the world. And so some of it happened that way. But it's, it was a, quite a ride. And so I was like, they're growing that fast they got to be using some sort of like staffing agency, temp agency. And so I started calling all the temp agencies in Chicago <laughs> and I found one that was staffing for Groupon. And I was like, Hey, I'm going to come in. I'm going to sign up. He, just put me in to anywhere you can at Groupon. And so like the next day I'm like in Groupon and they were like opening up like this, like 
this like call center because they were starting to get calls about people like, you know, they started Groupon and then like a year later when all the Groupons started expiring, they're like getting a lot of calls from people like, hey, I didn't know this expired, you know, like, and, uh, and so they created this like customer service call center and I worked there for like two weeks and, and then they hired me to like kind of like open up some newish type sales territories. They had done good in like the, the big cities, like Chicago, San Diego. I love that you were like, oh, you're not gonna hire me? Oh, you're gonna hire me. It might be not for like two weeks, but you will hire me. I might, f- I'll find a different way in. And just whatever, I'll do whatever. <laughs> I love that so much. Okay, keep going, sorry. Yeah, yeah let's keep going. No, it's okay, and so they, they were starting to go after smaller cities. They kind of got some good footing in the big cities. I needed to go after like the South Bend, Indiana's and stuff like that. And so um, was able to kind of get a lot of businesses on board in those areas. And then, you know, then I started kind of like wiggling my way into product. And because I was like, well, I want to build software. And and so I started like meeting with the product guys. And I was like, I was like, hey, what are you guys working on? You know, like, what, what can I do to help? And, and they're like, well, I'll tell you what, if you can solve this problem, like you can join the product team. And the problem was, he's like, Groupon ran into this really weird problem where, like, the name of e-com, the name of the game in e-commerce is like, get that cart as fat as possible, you know, before they check out. And at Groupon, everyone just bought one thing, one thing only. There was no upsells. There was no nothing like that. Like, when have you ever heard of someone going to Groupon and be like, oh, I bought five Groupons? And like, no, no one ever did that. And so that was like the holy grail of like the product, you know, in that, in that place was like, how do we get people to buy multiple Groupons in a single session? And, and so I kind of started coming up with ideas for that. And kind of tossed around an idea about Havsies, where you go in on a Groupon. It was a way to kind of pull people into a second group on with a friend or something. Um, but yeah, then, then I just like was doing product management after that. Um, it was cool. It was cool to see group on like explode um, and then see the CEO get fired. And, but it's also been cool. Like seeing that, that CEO, do you know what happened in the group? Tell on us, CEO? remind us. I don't remember. Andrew Mason was the C he's the founder CEO and he was a really kind of like funny guy. I feel like, like, I like to joke around and like, I feel like our humor is on the same wavelength. Like when he, he studied music and uh, when he was in college and, and so he created, he, he came across like the hands down the worst demo tape he had ever heard. And when they opened up the customer service department, he's like, this is the whole music. <laughs> so he, they used this old demo tape, to, <laughs> you know, to be like really bad, you know, hold music, but he, wow. he was kind of young. He started kind of coming to meetings like drunk and, and then the board fired him. So were and you, were you like hanging out with him quite a bit or something like you guys no, had I a just personal relationship? Seeing, seeing from a distance. Okay. Okay. So he would do like all hands meetings or something mm-hmm. like that. And I could be like, he'd be like burping. I'd be like, yeah, I bet he's been drinking. And, um, and so he, anyways, he got let go. sent out a funny tweet about it. He was like, guys, I just want to tell you that I'm going to, I think I want to spend more time with my family and, and, uh, and all that, he's like, actually, I just got fired. I'm sorry. I gotta go. Um, but he, but he's kind of a cool, cool story. Cause he, he made like probably a few hundred million, like in that, in that saga. And, and then he's done really cool companies since then. Like he's, he does Descript. He's the CEO of Descript, 
which is like a, a big, you probably know it, Dalton. Like, looking at Dalton, yeah, yeah, right now they love that, that software. The script is fantastic. It's played a really big role in kind of like, you know, uh, text to, you know, to voice or vice versa, voice to text. And, and so it's really popular in the podcasting world. And, and so he's kind of continued to do stuff and he's like gotten his footing as like a, a leader and a CEO and, and kind of learned a lot probably from those Groupon days. But I kind of like stories where, you know, he could have just faded away, been like a one hit wonder, kind of like the MySpace Tom guy, you know, like, <laughs> but he just kept doing it. And, True entrepreneur uh, just keeps coming back for more. Yeah. Right? It just keeps coming back. Yeah. Um, but okay. then I ended up taking taking a job at Sears um, and Sears. Um, what do you guys know about Sears? When it was still a thing, right? <laughs> when it was still a thing. Yeah. Cause it's no longer around now. In some shape I mean, it was form, the number one retailer for a long time. Right? Yeah. In the, in the 1960s, Sears did two, 3% of all retail sales. Like, like they were doing just an astronomical amount of sales. And, um, and if you read like Clay Christensen's book, he talks about how, they're a good example of like the innovator's dilemma, you know, like they just, they just kind of gotten caught in the business of going after short-term profits and then eventually just went, went under. But I've kind of felt like there was a lot of interesting things that I saw when I was there. Like, did you guys know that like Sears like had a credit card and, and they were one of the first ones to ever have a credit card and they could have been as big as Visa had they played their cards differently. Um, they also, you know, built the tallest building in the world, uh, the Sears tower in Chicago. That's and right. they, they kind of like were a company that was interesting. They kind of pioneered a lot of stuff. There was, while I was there, they had, they had, a they built some software. It was called like my gopher and it was DoorDash be years before anything. And, and it just kind of got botched up. And so it was an inter place, interesting place to be. Cause it was like, it was like this behemoth that was so big and was just kind of like in decline. And, and you could kind of see why it was happening there. I, I remember hearing a senior leadership uh, or a senior executive, like at the company say this, he said, I just don't think people are going to buy refrigerators from their phone. And I, and I was like, and this is like, <laughs> This is post Whoa. post iPhone, you know, wow. like this is like, I couldn't believe it. And, and so I, but I doubled down on that. Like, I was like, well, I, th I think they are. And when I joined, you know, the, from mobile phones, we were only getting like $35 million per year in sales. And, and I was thinking like, Hey, if we make it easier to buy refrigerators, which are like at the time was like the bread and butter of Sears, like, you know, big ticket appliances. I was like, we could, we could move, we could create a lot of sales. And so I just made it really easy to buy a fridge, you know, figured it was easier to earn money on the website by selling one $1,000 fridge rather than a thousand pairs of like $1 socks. And, uh, and, but we, the team did awesome. Like we, we doubled it year over year for several years. So like went 35 to 75 to 150 to 300. And it just kept like growing. Uh, part of that's just riding the waves of, you know, like mobile commerce was picking up, um, but we were definitely outpacing the industry um, with like how fast like mobile sales were growing. Um, but it was kind of a nearest place to be. Um, 
And, and I feel like I learned a lot from being there about like why big companies oftentimes have trouble innovating. Do you know the guy that started Braintree used to work at Sears and he tried to build it at Sears? Mm, left, I didn't know that. Couldn't get it off. He couldn't get it going at Sears, left Sears, pulled a, you know, a couple employees off to help him build it. And then like within a very short period of time, sold it to PayPal for like, I think north of 1 billion, I think. Um, it it's insane how often that happens too. like the entrepreneur element, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, and innovation just, inside of a giant company. Yeah. It's just tragic that they couldn't capture any of those things. Right. Yeah. I mean, they even tried to, if I remember right, didn't they buy Kmart to try to turn that around and have a lower cost leader or something or yeah. maybe the other way around. I can't remember. I don't remember. Well, yeah. So a hedge fund billionaire ended up being the, the final CEO of Sears. But his hedge fund bought Kmart. His name's Eddie Lampert. And he lives down in Miami. And at the time, his house was like 35 million bucks and just really nice. And he was fully remote. He stayed in Miami. He, he had been uh, kidnapped before. And so he like he played it pretty close to, he was pretty careful like after that kidnapping. And so even when he came up to like Sears' headquarters, in Illinois, he would, you know, he's got his bodyguards and stuff like that. And, uh, but yeah, so his hedge fund bought Kmart and then he, he took Kmart and then bought Sears and then he created Sears holdings and, but he's, he's a hedge fund guy. So he thought like with dollars and cents and, and so his, his big play was let's get all these assets out of Sears. Like Sears was like, kind of like in decline. And so he's like, let's just get these assets out of Sears before like anyone can claim them bankrupt bankruptcy, you know? And, uh, and so he, Sears has been, had been acquiring real estate for over a hundred years. So like, like they had properties everywhere. A lot of these properties were valuable. They had a property in Cupertino, California, just this one property, hundred million bucks. And, and so he took all the real estate that Sears owned and sold it to a different entity that he was also connected to and then, and then leased it back to, to Sears where the stores were still operating. Um, but I, I think the, the business books, it will go down in history as probably the biggest real estate play in like the history of business, <laughs> like a company that acquired department store level mall, you know, level properties for a hundred years, just about, I mean, they started with catalogs before there was physical stores, but, yeah. um, but he, he pulled it all out. And so he, he made a lot of money in the process of the company declining. And there was something that like always stood out to me about that. And, and, and still does like, I just, there's something I don't like. Um, have you guys ever traded options before? A little bit. Mm -hmm. Ever bought a put? Mm. Okay. Well, a put is like a bet against the stock price. And, and you can buy puts on like, just like the S and P 500, which is a bet against the whole market. And, and at the beginning of like 2020, I, I kind of saw what was happening with COVID and I've just doubled down on puts and, and the stock market did crash. And you make a bunch of money when that happens, but there's something that just feels, I don't like it. I don't like betting against like our market. I don't like betting against like a company, like, 
Um, <laughs> it feels, it feels, there's something that feels yeah. weird. Yeah. I can see that. But so, you know, for Eddie, you know, the CEO of Sears to make a bunch of money while the overall company uh, like hurt. So that's what happened essentially. He, he plundered the entire company to, to kind of fill his coffers. Is that right? Uh, I mean, I don't want to blame Eddie all the, all together, but sure. I think there's a lot of people that would say that like had, you know, the situation been slightly different, but they, there was decades of like miss moves, you know, oh, before yeah. Eddie even joined the, they picture. were dying for a long yeah, time. Yeah. They were dying yeah. for a while. It's too bad. It's interesting. I, you know, just to listen to you talk about kind of your various jobs leading up to, um, you know, branching out and doing your own thing, how you've been an innovator and doing kind of like you talked about entrepreneurship, um, probably at every job, like if you think about it. Um, so how, how has that mindset helped you as an entrepreneur? Well, one of the reasons why I like being in a company identifying problems is because you kind of have an, a leg up on like someone that's like looking at it from the outside. Although I feel like, you, you know, the people at RevRoad do a really good job of like doing interviews and trying to get their head inside of that company. And I've been trying to do that myself. Um, like after seeing you guys do it, um, because I used to think like, Oh, you kind of have to work at this company to really like see the problems that like are impossible to see from the outside. But I think if you're good at doing interviews and you can find a few people at the companies, you can probably get to those answers the same way quicker without having to actually work there. Um, kind of the analyst side, right? You're analyzing all the stats and the data information. Yeah. 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 I like that. And full disclosure for our listeners, Smees is, I don't think I mentioned this, but Smees is a RevRoad portfolio company. Yeah. So this is kind of fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, but I have kind of had that mindset the whole time. Um, like when I, when I joined E-Trade, um, the one thing that stood out to me was options trading had like a crazy long, like learning curve, like from some, for, like from the moment someone goes, I want to learn how to options trade to the moment where they actually place that first trade. It was like several months. Like there's a lot of like research. They're like poking around. Maybe they paper trade, like, which is like virtual trading. And, and it takes them a while to kind of get to that leap off spot where they like actually submit it to, you know, submit an order and have it filled. And, and so I was like, you know, that, that was one of the problems that I was thinking about all the time. Cause I was working on options trading software and I was like, I was like, and this is before Robinhood had good, you know, ops. Robinhood started off with just stocks and then they got into options and, and their options trading experience isn't super great. Um, but I, I think it is like a tad user, more user friendly than like something like, Think and think or swim from TD Ameritrade or or Power E Trade, uh, their mobile app. Like I feel like it was a little more user friendly, but it's still not there. And so I was like telling my boss, I was like, Hey, I think I think I want to do a design sprint. And um, and do you guys know what a Google Ventures design sprint is? I mean, I'm I'm familiar with it, but I, I why don't you explain it for our listeners? Yeah, so they they came up with this really good one week long method to kind of validate like ideas, businesses, uh, apps, you know, whatever. So like Monday, you're kind of like, 
And there's a series of exercises where it really kind of gets you warmed up, gets you thinking outside of the box. Like Monday, you'll be kind of discussing the problem. Wednesday or Tuesday, you'll be kind of coming up with like potential solutions. Wednesday, you'll kind of like start vetting those. Thursday, you'll actually build like a full prototype, like a design prototype or like they've even done these for like, you know, TSA checkpoints. So like, we got to improve these TSA checkpoints. So they'll build like out of cardboard, like a fake checkpoint to mimic, you know, what their idea is. And, uh, and then Friday you user test it with at least like half a dozen users. And, and so in a one week period, you go from like nothing, you go, you go into these weeks with like no preconceived motions, not like nothing's off the table. Um, and you really are thinking like, how can we do this differently? And, uh, and by Friday afternoon, you have actual feedback from real users that have interacted with your thing. And so it's a one week sprint. And so I was telling my boss, I was like, Hey, we, we should do this. And he's like, it's kind of expensive. You know, like if you think about how much each employee, you, you got to have like enough people in this room for like one week to like make it work. Like you need a designer, you need an engineer, you need a product person, you need maybe a subject matter expert or, you know, whatever. So there's like five people in this room for an entire week. And so if you take their salaries divided by, you know, 52 weeks, you you can calculate how much it would cost to run one of these. And, and my boss was like, I'll tell you what, it's like the week before Christmas, nothing ever gets done. He's like, take five people and just go into that room and, and figure out this options trading thing. That's cool. That cool is have, cool. It's cool to have a boss that would be like willing to do innovation like that. Yeah. And then you even were able to pitch it to him and you know, kind of sell them on it. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. And, and so we, one of the things that inspired, this was around the time that like, do you guys ever play breath of the wild mm-hmm. Zelda? Um, I consider it, you don't, do you play games at all? Uh, yeah. But like call of duty, <laughs> my wife likes Zelda, but I haven't ever been able to, I, get I have not played that now. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so Zelda, Zelda Breath of the Wild, I think, is probably the best game that's ever been made. Why? Um, there's a lot of reasons, but one thing it does really well, and we talked about it in this design sprint when we were talking about options trading, is there's not like a ton of handholding. They just like open you up into a world, and there's a little bit of an invisible hand that's guiding you through it, but it is like, it's just like no tutorial, no nothing. Like it's just you explore. An adventure. And, and so I was thinking, you know, maybe there's something there where can we reduce the learning curve, you know? Cause like if, if you can, part of the reasons why trading options is hard is because you have to teach all this jargon. Like what is a, what is an option? What is a call? What is a put? What is in the money out of the money? mean, you have to teach all this jargon. I was like, what if we stripped all the jargon out and we created a breath of wild experience where like, it's just intuitive and we're doing everything we can to kind of guide them. But you reduce this big learning curve up front by like, you know, making it less scary. And, um, and so anyways, at the end of the week, we had built what I still believe to be the best options trading app that like the most intuitive, I'll say actually, I'll say the most intuitive an easy to use options trading app ever. 
And that it literally reduces the learning curve for trading options from months to minutes. And that's cool. Yeah, it was called. What's it called? Well, I never saw the light of day, but it's called Options Playbook. And uh, and I still have, I think, a Figma prototype of it. I can show you sometime. But what did they do with it? They just said, "Oh, thanks for doing that. That's it. Thank you very much. Goodbye." Or what? What they, happened? They they liked it. Um, but what ended up happening when, when Morgan's, there was a lot of consolidation in like the finance space. Um, like you had Charles Schwab buy TD Ameritrade. Then you had Morgan Stanley buy E-Trade. All of this happened really, really quickly because there was a race to the bottom. Like essentially these companies were making money off of like commissions, commission fees off the trades, you know, seven, eight, $10 per trade. And then Robinhood came out with commission-free trading. And there was this moment where, like, Robinhood had picked up enough steam. And it was clear that there was, like, they, they had closed the gap enough on the features between these platforms that, like, like the Charles Schwab and Morgan Stanley were just, like, you know, like, they just, there's no fees. You know, like, they, they all dropped their fees within, like, a very short period of time. Um, like to the point where like, I think it was only like a day apart, like one company got rid of commission fees and the next company got rid of commission fees. But when you do that, there's not a ton of money in trading anymore. Um, and so when Morgan Stanley bought E-Trade, the, the shift from like trading to banking focused, uh, like happened. And so trading related features got backburned, um, just because, there's not as much money there. It's now more of a game of like how much of a person's wallet can you get on your platform? And so like, can we get them to do their mortgage with us? Can we get them to do their car loans with us? Can we get them to just have normal, you know, checking in savings accounts with us? They want your entire wallet on their finance platform. And, and so once all the trading platforms had $0 commissions, there was no, there wasn't a ton of incentive to build out more trading features. You know what I mean? Mm. Interesting. So, I mean, Neil, this is fascinating. I mean, what a, <laughs> what a long, vast and varied journey, right? You're just getting started, right? Yeah. So what have you learned on this journey? What, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs and say, here's what I learned. Here's what you should go do. I, I certainly wouldn't take my <laughs> any advice from myself. I feel like I, I'm one of those guys that I think is like a little bit of a late bloomer. And like, I'm just barely starting to hit my stride, you know, like, uh, like I got a three-year-old and that's like our oldest kid is three. And, Congrats, and I feel like by the way. that, th thank you. That was like what really like fatherhood is something that so drastically changed the trajectory of my life and gave me focus purpose. And, and so I feel like really, I'm only like, I feel like I'm starting to like actually get up to speed. And so, you know, I'm like in my late thirties, like I, I feel like I'm, um, I'm just kind of just getting started. Um, but yeah, I feel like, um, if continually looking for problems and thinking of ways to, to do something better, I, one of the books I read in that movie theater is Walden by Thoreau. Do you guys ever read that? Yeah. Classic. There's a, there's a part of that, that book where he talks about land surveyors and he, he was a surveyor himself. That, like that was his main job. You know, he writes books, philosophical books, but 
he did land surveying, and he had developed ways to be more accurate with the measurements. But these methods were like pushed down because there were people that had a vested interest in the the measures being inaccurate. And and I've always kind of felt like um, the there will be people that don't want things to change, but we have to. <laughs> and so like the people that are figuring out solutions to problems, like they're going to have like a lot of headwinds. Um, doesn't mean that you're wrong. It just means that like they're the old ways are resistant to change. And so I feel like I'm learning now that I got, I got to keep pushing forward you know, like the wind won't always be to your back. Um, and, and sometimes you just have to keep pushing through, you know? Have you ever, I had a friend actually yesterday remind me about a book that I'd read a few years ago. Um, and it's called range. Have you read range? No. Okay. So it's a, it's about how like, uh, for years and years, um, we focused on career paths and how like, you start out like say in banking and you start out as a teller and then you become a, a customer service representative and then you become a loan assistant and then you become a loan officer and then you like work your way up the chain. But the philosophy behind the book range is that people that bounce like from different career paths learn such different skill sets from all of these different careers that they become actually better executives um, because they have such a varied you know, experience got the range. Yeah. Yeah. So the book's really fascinating. You should look it up. Cause I think kind of, you know, where you've been an innovator in all of these different industries, uh, you kind of embody that, that style. I think that's really fascinating. How do you balance? So how do you balance that with becoming a Jack of all trades, but like an expert of none, you know, or what's the saying? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. I don't remember what the saying Jack is. Jack of all trades and expert of none. Yeah. I think that's, that's it. The, that's the saying. Yeah. Cause yeah, I feel I like so. those that bounce around, they do end up getting a, the, you know, a pretty wide picture of like the world, but then like they never, <clears throat> do you ever read good to great or not? I'm sorry. Not good to great. Too good to ignore. I, I don't one. know. Good to great. Yeah. I have not <clears throat> read the one you just too mentioned. Too good huh? to ignore. It's I'm going to write this so, one down too. I'm writing down a couple of these so, books here. So good. They, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. So good. They can't ignore you. And that's, it's a Steve Martin quote, but the guy that wrote the book basically looks at like, like the main, if you look at the career advice that people have given over the last like 15 years, it's been like passion focused, mm -hmm. even though like these people that give the advice don't necessarily take their advice. You know, like Steve Jobs gave a you know speech once about passion and follow your passion. You know, do what you're passionate about. But then, like this, this author looks at Steve Jobs' life and he's like, if this guy followed his own advice, he would have been some Buddhist monk. You know, like eating apples in an apple orchard his whole life. Like he would have followed his passion. He didn't follow his passion. You know, he he perfected his craft. Mm -hmm. And he said that you know the book essentially focuses on that. That like. It's not about, you know, following your passion every which way it takes you. It's about doing something and getting really, really good at it. And, and, and that there's more happiness in that than, than, than just following your passion. You know, like 
like uh, the receptionist that like ends up being the best receptionist in the world, working for the best executives in the world is going to have a very happy life probably. Um, and even though like on the base level, you'd say, Oh, receptionist probably isn't that great of a job. Um, but yeah, it's super, super good. And, and, and I feel like it made me rethink the way I think about hmm. careers. Um, cause I think there's a lot of people that it, it, the, the, the author in the book, he ends up like doing some searches, like through all of the books that have been written over the last little bit. And you can search by keyword <clears throat> and he looks by passion and it like around, I forget what year, but there's a year where basically like passion and self-help books skyrockets. Everyone's talking about follow your passion. Huh. And, and then he shows another chart where he shows career unhappiness and it perfectly correlates with it. Wow. And, and so you got all these people chasing their passion when really they should be pe chasing perfection of their craft. Mm. I like that. I, I think my only commentary to that, because I've thought about this quite a bit too, is, you know, if you do choose that one area or skill technique and you go deep, right? Yeah. You're kind of always stuck there because you don't have any other skills, right? And I've seen this happen to a lot of people that I know. And then if life circumstances change or, um, you know, things just are different than what they originally thought, then there's nowhere else to go, right? Uh, and and so that's I think, I think that's the other side of the coin, right? Um, I agree with it. I mean, you look at you look at the market, and it it does reward those that are best at their Definitely craft, right? Incentivizes that, yeah. For sure. I mean, look at the best NBA players, right? I'm not going to say who it is because there's controversy on who that really is. <laughs> there should be. It's Michael you Jordan, look at right? the it is Michael Jordan. Yes, it is. Thank Coming you for from a that. Chicago guy. Yes, Chicago, of course. But um, he was. We're very... in Utah. I've never hated anyone more than I hated the Bulls in the <laughs> yeah, '90s. Right. Yeah. So I'm still right? a little jaded. But he um, was very well compensated because he was the best at his For craft, sure. right? Yeah. But but then you saw him try to diversify in other things and it just did not go well, right? Because that's all he knew was basketball. Yeah. So I think I like what you're saying and I agree with it, but there's also the other side too. And I kind of wonder, hmm, I wonder, I, I don't know. I don't you should know read both think. books and then we'll, we'll Yeah, talk there we go. It. We'll read Sounds both good. and talk yeah. about it. Yeah, <laughs> I love we'll have it. have a recap. I love it, Neil. Thanks for that commentary. Well, so, I think this has been really fun um, and I'm... I'm just hearing your background and like how you are constantly innovating. I have no doubts that you will find something <laughs> with Smees, whether Absolutely it's exactly agree. the the direction that it's going today or a completely different direction. I have no doubts that you're going to find swear. some way to innovate it, to make it blow up. I think so too. And I'm excited to see it happen. <laughs> Keep us updated on how that goes. We'll do. So last, we're, we're running out of time here, Neil, but last uh, quick question, craziest thing that's happened to you, just rapid fire in this crazy entrepreneur journey you've had, what's the most wild thing that just has completely blown your mind? Okay, so I started a film production company. Uh, of course. With a couple of In buddies. addition with everything else, This right? is when I worked at Sears. Oh, okay. and And we got this contract for this, uh, to do a Kickstarter video for this like kid tracker. It was like a little clip that you'd put on a kid and you could track your kid with your phone. And uh, and the my buddy wrote the script. It was a really funny script. And, uh, but the script like is, is, so it's like a five-year-old girl, you know, that's like gives the whole like Kickstarter pitch and, and she's running around, she's getting lost. And there's a part of the script where she is driving a forklift. And I was thinking about the script and I was like, 
I was like, I don't know if we should shoot this. <laughs> and, uh, and I called up a, a Sears and we filmed it in Utah and I called up a Sears, uh, general manager. There's been one in West Jordan. And I said, I was like, Hey, I was like, I got a little side business where I film, film stuff. Is there any chance I can film something in at your Sears? And, uh, and he's like, yeah, yeah, no problem. And I was like, I was like, do you want, I can pay you a little bit of money. He's like, no, no worries. Like, he's like, just buy the team pizzas. And, and so we bought the team pizzas, but we film, we film every shot we need in this Sears department store. And then we go to the back and there's like a small, like warehouse area and there's a forklift. And I'm like, this is the final shot. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I get this, you know, the girls, the five-year-old girl, her mom's there. And I tell her like, Hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to try to be really, really safe. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> and, um, and so I take, you know, I pick her up the girl, I put her on the, the forklift and I say, I was like, I got a straight path for you. I was like, you're not going to turn this wheel at all. You're just going to hold the wheel. Don't turn it. And, and I say, this is the gas pedal and you're going to, push the gas pedal and then I'm going to meet you 50 feet over there and I'm going to hop on here. And I'm going to stop the, stop it for you. And, and so I hop off the, you know, the forklift, I go like 50 feet down and, and she's like, we say action, go camera speed. <laughs> and, uh, and she presses the gas, and nothing happens. And I'm like, Oh, this is weird. I was like, so I go back there and I was like, um, I, I, I'm familiar with forklifts because I had another job where I the driven one, but apparently this one had like a safety feature. Didn't weigh enough. Yeah, she didn't weigh enough. So I was like, all right, grab those sandbags. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so we put a bunch of sandbags on the forklift chair so that it weighs it down enough so that sure. it will trigger the, the safety feature for her to drive. And... I don't know if I want to tell you the rest of this story. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> you, no, no, you have to. <laughs> so she's got the sandbags on there. I go back to my spot 50 feet away. And then we say action. She presses the gas and we film her driving a forklift through a warehouse. Five-year-old girl. And, and I was like, and then like she gets to the end and then I hop up there, press the brake and then like, you know, turn off the key. And then we get her off of it. And, and then, but like, for some reason in film production, like sometimes you just do like crazy stuff like that. And you're like, don't think about it afterwards. But afterwards I was like, that was probably the stupidest thing I could have ever possibly done. And I can't <laughs> believe the parents said it was okay. Like, I, I was like, that could have gone so wrong. And the guy that, you know, the thing that's crazy though, is like the Sears guys that, you know, let me do it. They're all just chilling back they there. Didn't like care. totally normal five-year-old girl driving a forklift. They had drive. pizza. They had pizza. They didn't care. Right. That's yeah. so funny. That is awesome. Cool. Well, well thanks for having me. What, where can people find you Neil? Um, just LinkedIn and then smeeze.com slash Neil. Uh, if you ever want to call, it's free to call me. It's paid to call most people, but you can call me via that whenever you want. Awesome. Heck yeah. Well, I'm excited to see what happens. Good luck. <laughs> thanks, guys. Good luck, Neil. Take care. See ya. Thanks for being on the show. And thanks, Dalton, our awesome producer. Uh, we appreciate you helping us out with this podcast every single week. Heck yeah, Signing Dalton. out.
The Midnight Founders Podcast is a podcast about entrepreneurship that is hosted by CB Vault and Rev Road. CB Vault is the entrepreneur arm of Central Bank. And Rev Road is a venture services firm where companies come to grow. Thanks for listening to us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is AJ and Jake signing out.